The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Is the Commander-in-Chief mentally unstable? This is Thursday, August 24th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. Now, here's something that doesn't happen very often. Questioning the mental health of a president. More than a few people are questioning whether the leader of the free world is of sound mind. More people are questioning it and more openly, a first in American history. And more people of note are pointing at Trump and asking that question. Tennessee Republican Bob Corker has been serving in Washington for a long time and is widely respected because he speaks thoughtfully and deliberately. Like other Republicans, Corker has tried to give Trump a chance. This past week, Corker said Trump has, quote, not yet been able to demonstrate the stability nor some of the competence we expect from a president. Democrats, meanwhile, have cut to the punch. California's Congressman Adam Schiff saying, I certainly think there's an issue with the president's capability. A California congresswoman chimed in with the remark that Trump's, quote, showing signs of erratic behavior and mental instability that placed the country in grave danger. If this were a strategy, if Trump were crazy like a fox, as some have suggested, then a Washington Post writer was correct to say if those things are true, Trump's approval ratings would be higher and he would have accomplished far more than he has. With rants and reversals from North Korea to Charlottesville, Trump has been all over the map with his words, making things worse. Reports from within the White House speak of Trump's frequent rage, not to mention the tweets he uses to lash out at individuals and groups. After his speech in Phoenix Tuesday night, Trump's mental state was a concern to a former national intelligence director, James Clapper. I really question his ability, his fitness to be in this office. Clapper told CNN the speech was, quote, downright scary and disturbing. Referring to Trump's behavior, Clapper spoke of a, quote, complete intellectual, moral, and ethical void. Clapper called Trump's access to the nuclear codes pretty damn scary, saying Trump could be a threat to national security. It's also been mentioned that the same short fingers that commit typos to Twitter would also push the buttons to enter the nuclear codes. And then there are the two Donald Trumps the one that reads softly from a teleprompter, and the one that shouts at his rallies. All these questions about Trump's mental health lead us to the Constitution's 25th Amendment, in which the vice president and the cabinet are to relieve the president of his powers and duties if he's unable to carry them out for any reason. It may be up to the military men who now work alongside Trump, Chief of Staff John Kelly, Defense Secretary Jim Madison, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, to serve the country by monitoring the president's condition they would be the ones most likely to surround the desk of Vice President Mike Pence to say the president is unable to carry out his duties. Trump gave three speeches in three days this week, two of them calm, one of them wild. His third and final speech was yesterday to the American Legion Convention, another friendly audience. As he began the week, Trump was reading softly from the teleprompter a moderate conservative speech clearly written by someone other than the man we had witnessed the day before. It was in Arizona a year ago that anti-immigration candidate Donald Trump told an audience, my first hour in office, those people are gone. Trump returned to the scene Tuesday evening, just days after a white nationalist had killed protester Heather Heyer. It was the worst possible timing, and the Democratic mayor of Phoenix said so more than once, asking Trump to stay away, especially if Trump planned to fan the flames by pardoning convicted Sheriff Joe Arpaio. 
Trump didn't pardon Arpaio that night, but later hinted that he would, throwing another bone to the white supremacists who support Trump. The White House says it's prepared the papers for that pardon and prepared talking points for the president for if and when that pardon is issued. Three congressmen wrote Trump a letter this week in which they warned that if he pardons Arpaio, quote, you would be sending a clear message that your allies are immune from prosecution. They're talking about Russia there. More on that shortly, because there is, this week, a lot more to be had. Arizona's Republican governor didn't show up for Trump's Phoenix rally either. Neither did the state's two Republican senators, John McCain and Jeff Flake, both having recently been verbally attacked by Trump. But Trump went to Arizona despite a far less than welcoming Republican leadership and the potential for violence connected to a massive protest outside the venue where Trump would speak. Unlike the Dr. Jekyll who had read softly from a teleprompter the night before for a military audience, the louder, more unhinged Mr. Hyde Trump appeared at his campaign rally in Phoenix Tuesday night. Yes, it was another campaign rally in which Trump surrounds himself only with those who support him or who have to listen because they were in a uniform. It was his eighth rally in seven months as president for an election years away that likely won't include him. But Trump again revealed his continued obsession with the last election, reflecting on how quickly he moved to center stage in the Republican primary debates a year ago. He began his speech with a lie, gloating about what he perceived as a paltry number of protesters outside, protesters he would reference throughout his speech as thugs. Just so you know from the Secret Service, there aren't too many people outside protesting, okay? Next, he revealed again his obsession with the size of his crowds. A lot of people in here, he said, a lot of people pouring right now. He went on, of course. You know, I'd love it if the cameras could show this crowd because it is rather incredible. Trump again complained that the media doesn't show the size of his crowd, something the media has done in every single appearance. He recounted his perception of the dust-up over his response to the tragedy in Charlottesville. The media, he said, reported he didn't condemn the Nazis and the Klansmen in Charlottesville because he has a house in Charlottesville. You can't argue with logic like that. You literally cannot. Trump recounted his original Charlottesville statement, but did not repeat what he'd said about the violence, quote, on many sides, on many sides. Trump went on and on about the media again, focusing on the coverage of his Charlottesville remarks. The crowd cheered his attack on a free press. Fox, he said, had treated him fairly, adding that Hannity's a great guy. Referring to the removal of Confederate statues from public squares, Trump spoke in white supremacist code with the words... And yes, by the way, they are trying to take away our history and our heritage. You see that. They're trying to take away our culture. Throughout the speech, Trump kept saying he could see red lights go out as cameras were being turned off. But by this time, no one could stop recording this. No cameras were being turned off. But he said it over and over as if paranoid. At one point, Trump threatened to shut down the government October 1st. Believe me, he said, meaning you shouldn't. If we have to close down our government, we're building that wall. He rambled from one topic through another, through Kim Jong-un and statues to NAFTA and CNN, from Sheriff Joe to Antifa. And then there was this remark from Trump. I'm a person that wants to tell the truth. I'm an honest person. And what I'm saying, you know, is exactly right. As the speech ended and the camera switched back to the CNN newsroom, anchor Don Lemon's first words were, 
what you have seen was a total eclipse of the truth. And then Lemon turned to former National Security Advisor James Clapper, who questioned whether Trump is mentally fit to continue serving. And Clapper is not alone in saying that, as you heard. And such a thing has never happened before in the history of these United States. Trump had ranted and rambled for an hour and 15 minutes in a kind of public therapy session. The longer he spoke, the more he ranted, the more people slowly filed out of the stadium. Trump's calmer Dr. Jekyll speech on Afghanistan was the night before the Mr. Hyde rant in Phoenix. Last week it was North Korea and Venezuela. This week it's Afghanistan. Within the past two weeks, the president threatened a fire and fury preemptive strike on North Korea, which would have put us at war with China. Later in the week, Trump threatened to send the U.S. military into Venezuela. None of this happened. And the talk of North Korea and Venezuela suddenly stopped for reasons that are not entirely clear. And then Trump moved on as the Russia investigation closes in on his family and closest advisors. For reasons that are equally unclear and timed in a way that cannot be explained, Trump suddenly promised to win the war in Afghanistan that neither of the past two presidents have been able to win given eight years apiece. I'm a problem solver, Trump said, as he took ownership of a war that's nearly 17 years old, a $2.5 trillion war that's taken well over 2,000 American lives and wounded another 20,000 Americans. Trump did not say how he plans to succeed where others have failed. He did not say how many more young Americans he'd be sending into harm's way, and he did not say how long they might be there. A war that's dragged on for nearly 17 years has now been expanded and extended indefinitely. Trump called it a new strategy when military experts say it's really more of a new tactic. But Trump's tactics on Afghanistan are only new to him. In the campaign, he said Obama should have gotten us out of Afghanistan. These are not new tactics for the U.S. They're nearly identical to the military approach of George W. Bush. Like Bush, Trump won't give troop numbers and he won't set a timetable. We have about 8,500 soldiers in Afghanistan already. Educated guesses put the additional troops at three to 7,000 more. At one point, we had 100,000 soldiers in Afghanistan. Trump's plan would have reversed those shrinking numbers to maybe 14,000 for starters. Troop surges have been tried before without success. Although what the U.S. is now doing in Afghanistan isn't working, we will now do more of it. Again, these are new tactics, but not new strategy. A new strategy would also involve diplomatic efforts and quiet arm twisting. Trump has decimated the U.S. State Department, which normally would lead these kinds of efforts. Trump's State Department is shockingly understaffed, and he's proposed cutting its budget by nearly a third. So the questions here are, why the new effort in Afghanistan? Why now? And what about the threat from North Korea that was so foremost in the president's mind a week ago? Is this a new distraction from the Russia investigation, either because that's its purpose, or is it a distraction for a president with a very short attention span? Or is it something more sinister? In the run-up to his speech this week on Afghanistan, Trump met with generals and other top advisors. In those meetings, Trump asked if there was some way the U.S. could get a piece of Afghanistan's rich mineral wealth, complaining that American companies should get the rights to those minerals worth about $1 trillion. Afghanistan is a desperately poor country with vast reserves of iron, copper, silver, gold, and platinum, and 
lithium that's used to make batteries for phones and cars. And it's all very hard to get to, very difficult to harvest in such rugged terrain, which is why Afghanistan hasn't done it successfully. And that's not expected to change for another dozen years. During the campaign, Trump proposed taking oil from Iraq, even as Iraqi soldiers fought along U.S. soldiers against ISIS. In Monday night's speech, he talked about the blood and treasure wasted in Iraq. It's clear he's more interested in the treasure. And Trump reinforced that in his Afghanistan speech when he said, quote, As the Prime Minister of Afghanistan has promised, we are going to participate in economic development to help defray the cost of this war to us. There is one other component to Trump's Monday night speech that is concerning, namely his remarks about Pakistan. Trump was correct that as allies go, Pakistan is not a good one, allowing terrorists to operate from within its borders. But it is an ally on which the U.S. relies for its military operations against ISIS. Normally, we would hope to continue that reliance for that purpose. So it wouldn't seem wise to anger Pakistan, which Trump likely did when he implied it is an uncivilized country. And Trump likely angered Pakistan further by inviting India to get more involved in Afghanistan, where Pakistan is already heavily involved. For decades, the U.S. has remained neutral in the ongoing tension between Pakistan and India, but Trump's remarks clearly had the U.S. picking a favorite in a rivalry that, like North Korea, involves nuclear weapons. Pakistan, the country Trump has now offended, has over 100 operational nukes. And speaking of nukes, whatever happened with North Korea anyway? Despite their harsh words for Trump recently and his harsh words for them, Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and John McCain praised the president's speech and slammed Obama's Afghan policies. Some of the Trump base may disagree with Trump's plans, however. With Steve Bannon out of the White House and back at Breitbart, the conservative alt-news site slammed Trump's flip-flop and called it a contradiction of his pledge, America First. One Breitbart writer said he'd voted for Trump on the promise of change, adding, I may have made a mistake. Bannon himself, who ran the Trump campaign for a while, calls the Trump White House divided. The exodus from the White House has been stunning. The latest wave began with the firing of White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, replaced by Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly. Kelly immediately fired new communications director Anthony Scaramucci, press secretary Sean Spicer, and then chief strategist Steve Bannon. Trump's unpaid regulatory advisor, billionaire Carl Icahn, has left because of conflict of interest claims about how his job may have benefited his own businesses. Trump's science envoy has resigned to protest Trump's Charlottesville response in a letter that spelled the word impeach with the first letter of each paragraph. The abandonment of Trump continues after his inflammatory remarks about Charlottesville. Members of the business councils quit. Members of the arts council quit in a letter that spelled the word resist with the first letter of each paragraph. Trump is also being abandoned by dozens of charities that had planned their fundraisers to be held at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Since his Charlottesville remarks, they have canceled those reservations. Trump's behavior has him being abandoned by voters, including some of his own. A new Quinnipiac University poll has 62% of us saying Trump is doing more to divide the country. Only 31% think he's doing more to unite the country. 65% think prejudice and hatred have increased since Trump became president. Only 2% think it's decreased, 
with nearly a third saying it stayed exactly the same. 60% disapprove of Trump's response to the deadly violence in Charlottesville. Only 32% approve. 59% say he's encouraged white supremacist groups. Only 3% say he's discouraged them. 55% of voters don't like the way the media covers Trump, but 52% trust the media, while only 32% trust what Trump says. 62% say he doesn't provide moral leadership. 61% say he's not honest. A new public policy poll has 54% of voters saying Trump should resign if there is conclusive evidence Trump conspired with Russia to change the election outcome. Yes, a majority of Americans think Trump should resign if his campaign colluded with Russia. 12% of us are not sure, which means that 12% is open to persuasion. If that 12% shifts to should resign, Congress will have little choice but to threaten impeachment. The 34% who say Trump should not resign will likely never budge. The 34% matches his overall approval rating. A plurality of Americans think the Russia story is not fake news and that Trump's campaign did work with Russia. In the week's most interesting coincidence, Trump was abandoned during an eclipse. While we think of the word eclipse as meaning the moon blocking the sun, it actually comes from the Greek word eclipsis, which means to leave since the ancient Greeks believed that the sun was abandoning the earth. This past week, Trump also learned what it meant to be eclipsed. Even of sound mind, no one can govern this country without friends in Congress, where some friends are literally more important than others. Donald Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell haven't spoken in more than two weeks. Trump has made it clear publicly and privately he's angry with McConnell for not repealing Obamacare as promised. And McConnell is angry about the way Trump is treating sitting Republican senators, including John McCain and Jeff Flake. Trump called Flake a flake who's both toxic and a non-factor at the same time. As I mentioned earlier, Trump's actually cheered on the campaign of the candidate running against Flake in the upcoming Arizona primary. It is McConnell's job to keep his incumbents in place. The two men have not spoken since what the New York Times reports was a profane shouting match over the phone more than two weeks ago. And this is made all the more tense since McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, is Trump's labor secretary. But the fight and the insults over health care are not the only reasons Trump and McConnell have stopped talking to each other. There's Charlottesville, for one thing. The New York Times reports that McConnell, while publicly silent, has questioned privately whether Trump can lead the party through the 2018 elections. The Times says McConnell's not even sure the Trump presidency itself can survive. McConnell's former chief of staff told the paper Trump isn't wise to mess with this Republican Congress. Quoting former chief of staff Billy Piper, the quickest way for him to get impeached is for Trump to knock off Jeff Flake and Dean Heller and be faced with a Democratic-led Senate. That's important since the Times also reports that in that August 9th profane telephone shouting match, Trump also ranted about McConnell's refusal to protect him from the Senate's two Russia investigations. The story says Trump called other Republican senators to complain to them, too. Wait, did the president just try to obstruct justice again? Special counsel Bob Mueller is watching all of this. The latest bombshells in the Russia investigation and more, plus a comment from Bob Seska after this. It's fun to surprise people, especially people you love. And 
People love surprises if they're really good ones. This is a good one. Pro Flowers surprised me recently with a bouquet of beautiful fresh roses. It lasted for seven days just as they promised. Really brightens up the place. Pro Flowers can help you spring a bright surprise on someone you love. And Pro Flowers has a surprise for you. Get 20% off any of their unique summer rose bouquets or any other bouquet priced at $29 or more. If you can't decide, go with the roses. The roses are amazing. Guaranteed results for at least seven days or your money back. You pick the delivery date. And take it from a longtime customer. Pro Flowers gives you more bloom for your buck. Big, beautiful flowers with long, healthy stems. Remember, 20% off summer roses or any other bouquet, $29 or more. Go now to proflowers.com. Use the code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M, REALM, after the slash at proflowers.com. Surprise yourself with how you can surprise somebody else at proflowers.com slash REALM. In the congressional investigation of Trump-Russia, they've uncovered a campaign email from the man who is now Trump's deputy chief of staff. The email was sent last year by Rick Dearborn, notifying campaign officials about a person from West Virginia, we still don't know who, that wanted to connect Trump and his people with Vladimir Putin. This, according to a CNN report, based on multiple sources with direct knowledge of that congressional investigation. Neither Dearborn nor the White House will comment. Dearborn is not the first lower-level member of the Trump campaign to get such overtures from Russia, just the latest to be revealed. Campaign advisor George Papadopoulos also tried to set up meetings with the Russians, according to the Washington Post. Also at that time, Dearborn was chief of staff to then-Senator Jeff Sessions, who also met with Russian officials and avoided mentioning those meetings to Congress. Dearborn's email was sent in June of last year, about the time of the Trump Tower meeting, that put Russian officials in a room with Donald Trump Jr., son-in-law Jared Kushner, and campaign manager Paul Manafort. A source tells BuzzFeed that special counsel Robert Mueller's prosecutors are focusing on Donald Trump Jr., his meeting with that Kremlin lawyer in June of last year, and what Jr. has said publicly about that meeting. Trump Jr. has admitted he went to the meeting expecting dirt on Hillary Clinton. Don Jr. claims he came away empty-handed, but his intentions weigh heavily in the Russia investigation, and there are questions about printed materials that were reportedly left behind by the Russians that day in Trump Tower. Accepting anything of value from a foreigner in a presidential campaign is a violation of federal election laws. Potentially damaging information on an opponent could be construed as a thing of value. Mueller's team is also investigating former campaign manager Paul Manafort, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, and Trump himself over the possible obstruction of justice in the firing of FBI Director James Comey. Adding Trump's son to the list of those being investigated brings the investigation into the family. Manafort has reportedly flipped for the prosecutors and is now assisting in connecting the dots. It appears to have been Manafort who first told investigators about that June 9th meeting in Trump Tower, eagerly attended by Trump Jr., who had been promised dirt on Clinton. Christopher Steele is a name you might want to assign to a savvy British spy in the novel you're writing. But it's the name of an actual, highly respected former British spy, now a spy for hire, and the real Christopher Steele was hired early last year by former Wall Street Journal investigative reporter Glenn Sampson. 
Simpsons journalism specialty was money laundering and the Russian mob until he realized he could make better money investigating these things for wealthy clients. Simpson and his research firm, Fusion GPS, had been contracted first by Republicans and then by Democrats to find dirt on Donald Trump. Steele used his connections to compile a dossier that may have launched the FBI's original Trump-Russia investigation, a dossier of, among other things, compromising information compiled by Russia over a period of more than five years. It was that dossier that connected members of the Trump campaign and agents of Russia, and one that is horribly, personally embarrassing for Donald Trump. Some of Steele's findings were later confirmed by federal investigators, even though the Clinton campaign never used that dossier. Clinton campaign learned of its contents at the same time as the rest of us. We still don't know if there's been any investigation of the dossier's notes about a night in a Russian hotel room with Trump and hookers. Not that it really matters much at this point. Trump defenders in Congress say they smell a rat. Democrats paying for dirt on Trump for a dossier that contains some uncorroborated information, yet, that started the whole Russia investigation. Republicans like Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley wanted to know what Simpson's motivations were and who actually paid him. They may regret having asked. Simpson has now turned over 40,000 pages of documents that may be evidence that the charges against Trump in that dossier are true. He says he stands by the allegations in that dossier, that Simpson's proud of the quality of the investigative work and happy to share it with the public after having already shared it with the Senate Judiciary Committee in a 10-hour session of testimony this week. Simpson's lawyer calls the documents a roadmap for investigation. A roadmap would be handy. But in a search for the truth... The Senate Judiciary Committee may also want to hear from Christopher Steele himself. Steele has already met with the FBI, giving the Bureau the names of his sources for the things he included in his now infamous dossier. That ruling comes from a judge in a libel case that was filed by the Russian oligarch who runs the Internet cloud service known as Webzilla. In June of last year, Steele turned over his dossier to John McCain, who then turned it over to the FBI. The infamous dossier of Christopher Steele will call our novel. White supremacist Christopher Cantwell, the bald New Hampshire man featured in a Vice News documentary about that rally in Charlottesville, has now been arrested on felony charges. He's been charged with two counts of illegally using tear gas and pepper spray and one count of malicious bodily injury with a caustic substance. Cantwell was defiant and bombastic when he was interviewed by Vice News, but later appeared in a Facebook video in which he cried about possibly being arrested. After shouting, White Lives Matter, Jews will not replace us, and the Nazi slogan, Blood and Soil, Cantwell now says he was acting in self-defense. White supremacists will have to get their music and some of their bling somewhere else. Spotify has now removed hate music from its playlist, over two dozen bands recently popular with neo-Nazis and their ilk. Apple Music removed them three years ago after the names of those bands were published in a list from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now Spotify will no longer distribute that music, while Apple Pay and PayPal have pulled out as payment methods for white supremacist merchandise. Facebook responded to Charlottesville by removing pages advocating racism and or anti-Semitism. Mark Zuckerberg, who is Jewish, 
said he was appalled by the Charlottesville attack and the death of Heather Heyer. He vowed to delete any post celebrating her death and any other expression of racial violence. Two-thirds of us believe the killing of a woman at Charlottesville was an act of domestic terrorism, so we mostly agree on that. When it comes to Trump's claim that the blame belonged on many sides, a majority of us, 55%, agree he's wrong. But when it comes to Trump's overall response, or lack thereof, to Charlottesville, it depends on whether you're Republican or Democrat. A CBS News poll found that 68% of Republicans said Trump was right about many sides, but that 83% of Democrats believe he was wrong. The survey was taken over several days in which Trump didn't respond, responded poorly, corrected his response, then reverted back to his original position. The surveyors found the more Trump talked, the greater the disapproval rating. Interestingly, roughly 40% of all Americans believe Trump's comments and lack of comments have had little effect on race relations in the United States. But Trump stood his ground no matter how shaky. After defending white supremacist protests against the removal of Confederate monuments, Trump tweeted, Sad to see history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. Trump was said to be fuming about the media coverage of his Charlottesville remarks. Heather Heyer's mother told a reporter, I understand President Trump wants to speak with me. I've heard from his press secretary and a few other people, says Susan Bro. She says she has no interest in speaking with Trump. Heather's mother says, quote, I feel like I'm wanted for political agendas. Love vastly outnumbered hate in Massachusetts Saturday as a white Ku Klux Klan free speech rally fizzled out. Only about 40 of the haters showed up and were isolated in a gazebo on Boston Commons. Around them, on several sides, were over 10,000 counter-protesters. 500 cops on bike, on foot, and undercover were there to keep the peace, along with 200 state troopers to keep the two sides apart. The white supremacist event lasted only 45 minutes. Quoting one of the guest speakers, it kind of fell apart. Quoting one of the counter-protesters, if this was really about free speech... We would have been invited from day one. The removal of Confederate statues continues despite Trump's complaints. Four were removed Sunday night from the University of Texas campus. The statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson will be removed in Charlottesville. In the meantime, they are covered with black plastic tarps to honor the short life of Heather Heyer. J.P. Morgan Chase says it's giving a million bucks apiece to a couple of anti-hate groups after what happened in Charlottesville. It's also matching donations from employees and giving $50,000 to a Charlottesville community fund. Apple's Tim Cook has pledged a million each to the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center. It, too, is matching employee donations. The NAACP would like a word with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell about what appears to be a blackballing of quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Despite throwing 16 touchdowns in a dozen games, Kaepernick can't seem to find work after kneeling instead of standing during the national anthem to protest the continuing oppression of blacks in the U.S. That has made him unpopular with many, and it so far kept him from finding work in Seattle, New York, Baltimore, Miami, and elsewhere after being released by San Francisco. And there is now a backlash among black NFL fans and players who say, team should judge Kaepernick on his skill rather than his politics. Black New York City police officers have protested the blackballing. The NAACP says the NFL may be violating Kaepernick's right to free speech. 
How is the Trump presidency like a bicycle? Here's Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Lance Armstrong was entirely driven from his sport for using performance-enhancing drugs during his seven Tour de France victories. He was banned for life from ever competing in a sanctioned event, and as if that wasn't enough, he was driven from public acclaim for repeatedly lying about whether he was doping during his unrivaled streak of yellow jersey victories. We're ultimately talking about bicycle racing here, and while integrity in sports is important and setting an example for younger fans especially, there's nothing particularly earth-shattering about being caught cheating in sports, be it cycling, baseball, or Olympic competitions. Football, by the way, for some reason, mostly gets a pass when it comes to drugs. Hell, Marion Jones served for six months in prison, partially for her use of performance-enhancing drugs during her Olympic participation. Donald Trump, on the other hand, is still at large. I'm not here to relitigate the Armstrong or Jones sagas one way or another, but it's bizarre how quickly the American public has been willing to punish and exile athletes who don't play fair, while Trump somehow continues to serve as our chief executive despite committing trespasses far worse than using a banned supplement during a bike race. It was ultimately the tenacity of the sporting press that began the unrelenting attack on Armstrong's deception. With Trump, the political press has also risen to the occasion by digging into Trump's ongoing malfeasance. But all along, there's been a subset of reporters and pundits who are desperate to declare Trump to be, finally, presidential. There's a recurring glitch that triggers these participants in the debate toward the knee-jerk take that Trump is finally pivoting. It's like the old Lucy and Charlie Brown football ruse from Peanuts, and they keep falling for it. You might recall the countless other occasions in which Trump has apparently pivoted to being a more normal president, only to snap back hastily to his erratic, obnoxious, and perhaps pathological self. The most notable example of this phenomenon followed the U.S. missile attack on an airstrip in Syria, when the Beltway press corps swooned en masse, and CNN's otherwise insightful Fareed Zakaria sprinkled holy water over the White House, declaring, Trump became presidential tonight. Yes, because Trump really needed an extra incentive to bomb additional targets, right? Fast-forwarding to Trump's speech this week about his newly minted troop surge in Afghanistan, and Philip Rucker of the Washington Post tweeted, quote, Tonight is a new President Trump, acknowledging a flip-flop and talking about gravity of office, history, and substance, unquote. Yes, it was a new President Trump, at least until he stepped onto a stage in Phoenix on Tuesday night for another screechgasm disproving every undeserved positive word spoken about him the night before. This happens every single time, yet there are very serious political analysts who will continue to insist that Trump has officially pivoted whenever he manages to read off a prompter without choking on his own Chinese-made necktie. Every time Trump manages to make it through a public appearance without exposing himself for screaming passages from Mein Kampf in the original German, he's summarily ordained as presidential. But there's nothing remotely presidential about this president. Nothing. How many chances does he get? Far more than Armstrong or other less important public figures have been given. By the way, what's worse, lying about PEDs and cycling or sympathizing with Nazis and KKK members? You decide. Frankly, he should have been driven from the national stage after he mocked reporter Serge Kovaleski's disability, or after he attacked a Gold Star family, or after he repeatedly incited violence at his rallies, or after he was caught on video admitting to molesting women, or after he was caught on video sexually propositioning a 10-year-old girl, or after he acted like bully Alan White from Freaks and Geeks during three presidential debates, or after he admitted to firing James Comey in order to obstruct the Russia investigation. The list goes on and on and on.
Trump has been guilty of so many heinous words or deeds, it's nearly impossible to remember specific instances from any given week. Somehow, for reasons entirely lost on normals, including me, Americans pull their punches and refuse to hector Trump out of politics with the same vigor they've hectored so many others, celebrities, politicians, and athletes alike. They refuse to hold Trump accountable for his growing roster of horrible things, most recently his sympathetic words about Nazis and white supremacists. Trump, for some reason, endures. He endures despite the fact that his apparently well-received Afghanistan speech included the applause line, quote, we will fight to win. On the surface and to anyone who hasn't had any skin in the Afghan war, this might seem like an innocuous turn of phrase. But what does it say to the thousands of soldiers and wounded warriors who've already, for nearly two decades, fought like hell to win? What does it say to the thousands of families who've lost loved ones in Afghanistan? Were they not fighting to win? Of course, all American soldiers deployed to the AFPAC theater have fought and died in order to win the war. For Trump to suggest that fighting to win is a brand new development insults the men and women who've sacrificed so much in this 16-year enterprise in South Asia. What if Trump actually did it? What if he pivoted? What if he miraculously transformed his presidency and abandoned all his crutches, tweets, and insane non-sequiturs? Would it expunge his prior scandals? It shouldn't, but given the brownie points hurled in his direction for every instance of not-so-crazy behavior, it probably would. Either way, enough is enough. If the president delivers a prompter speech, it proves exactly one thing. He can read. Beyond that, it proves little else. Trump will continue to recite his prepared remarks awkwardly, shifting his off-balance torso from side to side as he squints to read the scripted text he didn't write. And there won't be anything noteworthy about his performance. And yes, he will continue to shriek like a drunken, poorly quaffed hyena during his rallies. What we saw in Phoenix is the real Trump. Yet the Fareed Zakarias and Philip Ruckers of the world will desperately point to his prepared speeches as indications that the president has finally abandoned the path of darkness for more respectable, more presidential endeavors. Wrong. It was wrong a year ago, it was wrong 216 days ago when he was inaugurated, and it'll be wrong until the day he's hopefully driven from office. Though considering his unlimited easy pass for sailing through one scandal after another, I'm beginning to wonder whether we're stuck with this monster for the long run. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Catch him at Salon.com and every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. I am proud to be one of the regular guests on that program. I'll join Bob again this Tuesday, August 29th. The Secret Service is trying to say it's not all Trump's fault that the agency has run short on money. The Secret Service director says the cash is running out because of stepped-up security in recent years that began with a rash of White House fence jumpers. But USA Today reported the Secret Service budget is severely strained because of Trump's large family and the multiple expensive resorts he likes to visit, resorts he owns and profits from. Under Trump and more than any other president, the Secret Service is tasked with protecting 42 people, nearly half of which are family. It's nearly a dozen more people than the agency was protecting when Obama was president. And unlike any other president, Trump is profiting from the taxpayer's loss. Agents assigned to the president stay at, for example, Trump's Mar-a-Lago at taxpayer's expense. When the agents have to rent golf carts to stay with the president on the course, the agency rents those golf carts from Trump. The agency's also strapped because it's only allowed to pay each agent a limited amount of overtime and there's been a lot more overtime under Trump. 
There is little doubt that Republicans and Democrats will, as they always have, come together and keep the president's security funded. What is in doubt is whether the taxpayers should be fattening Trump's wallet in the process. Because it's too soon to relax, here's our health care update. Early next month, the Senate committee will have two bipartisan hearings on how to stabilize the market to bring more companies into the marketplace and to control the higher premiums caused by the failed Republican attempts to repeal and replace Obamacare. Unlike the repeal and replace supporters on the Hill, this committee will bring in governors to talk about their state's specific needs. The chairman of the Senate Health Committee, Republican Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, says he hopes to give Americans peace of mind on health care with a two-party plan by the end of September. Meanwhile, the sharply conservative Republicans still in Congress are still plotting to at least repeal Obamacare, and they're working on an end run around House Speaker Paul Ryan to do it. But the effort toward a bipartisan fix for the Affordable Care Act also continues. It's been a week of military news with the Navy ordering the 7th Fleet to pause all operations for a day after the second crash of a 7th Fleet vessel in three months. Ten American sailors died this week when the USS John S. McCain collided with an oil tanker near Singapore. Seven other U.S. sailors died on June 17th when the USS Fitzgerald crashed into a Philippine merchant ship off the coast of Japan. The Fitzgerald captain and others were relieved of their commands. Before that, on May 7th, the USS Lake Champlain was struck by a small fishing boat on the Korean Peninsula. On January 31st, the USS Antietam ran aground while trying to anchor in Tokyo Bay. All four of the U.S. ships were guided missile cruisers, each from the 7th Fleet. The commander of the 7th Fleet has now also been relieved of duty. Quoting a Navy captain, this is abnormal. The Navy is investigating all of this, including whether its own training and procedures are diligent enough and the possibility the USS John S. McCain may have been the target of a cyber attack. The White House is following up on Trump's tweet about banning transgenders from the military. It's expected to send to the Pentagon in the next few days a memo outlining the way Trump wants the trans ban to be implemented. The memo gives Defense Secretary Jim Mattis six months to fully implement the ban, but also gives him leeway, the ability to decide which transgender service members can stay in the service and which have to leave because they are not deployable. The White House memo also directs the Pentagon to stop paying for transition medical care immediately, but Mattis has been given leeway on that as well. The ban is still not a reality in the meantime and may face the same pushback from the secretaries of the various branches as it did when the president's plans were first made known in a surprise tweet. For a while this week, the country's worries were eclipsed. That and the loss of two comedians. And can a hacker know when you're having sex? In the third and final segment, up next... I am so grateful for and blown away by the support that you've shown for this free, independent news and comment by doing as much of your shopping as possible, including back-to-school shopping, through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page and get the same great prices as always. Trump hates Amazon. If you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important you go to buzzburbank.com, click on the Amazon link, and bookmark that page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or just shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link, even just once, helps sustain this program. 
Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less for Prime members. That's especially handy for last-minute back-to-school shopping. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership along with music, books, and more. And please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already shop through my link, again, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. One took all. The nearly $759 million Powerball jackpot goes to just one winner who bought their ticket at a convenience store in Chicopee, Massachusetts. And before the 40% income tax, they will receive the biggest jackpot for a single winner in North American history. No word yet on who that winner is. The odds against winning were $292 million to one. If there hadn't been a winner, the drawing this coming Saturday would have been over a billion dollars. For one all-too-brief moment, millions of Americans put down their sharp differences and stood quietly to reflect on a rare wonder of nature and a little science. While the total eclipse was spectacular for those who could see it, the majority of us with a partial eclipse were rightfully less impressed. But millions took part anyway, some sharing their special glasses, welder's goggles, and pinhole boxes. It was an event and a party and a moment of unity as passing as the eclipse itself. Most of us dropped whatever we'd been doing to witness it. The frantic purchasing of lottery tickets tapered off for a few hours. Even outside the path of totality in Portland, Oregon, it got dark enough for the streetlights to switch on as the moon passed between the earth and the sun. In Carbondale, Illinois, they witnessed a 360-degree sunset, an orange sky in every direction. And then came the drive home, which was tricky out of Madras, Oregon, where roads built for 7,000 people had to handle 100,000 people. 50,000 had gathered in Weiser, Idaho. 200 million people lived within a day's drive of that path of totality, and well over 200 million of us watched it. Across the country, NASA tapped into a wealth of citizen scientists to help study the eclipse and the sun itself. Thousands of civilians helped document the eclipse to, among other things, help NASA study the sun's corona, which burns exponentially hotter than its core. Junior astrophysicists, biologists, meteorologists, and others measured the air temperature and observed the behaviors of plants and animals, even what effect the eclipse might have had on clouds. It was the first total eclipse to cross the entire country in a hundred years. It was the first total eclipse to cross the U.S. in 38 years. Now, the next one is just seven years away. In the Kearney, Missouri School District, just outside of Kansas City, they asked the high school seniors to provide the yearbook committee with a quote about themselves. Most of the submissions were lighthearted, including the ones submitted by two gay students. And everyone's quotes got published in the yearbook except theirs. School officials say they pulled the quote so as not to offend the other students. The two young men had submitted similar quotes, including, of course I dress well, I didn't spend all that time in the closet for nothing. But quotes were censored, in the school district's words, out of an abundance of caution. Now, officials have issued a statement that includes, we sincerely apologize to those students and says, it will use the incident as a learning opportunity to improve in the future. Of course, that doesn't help this year. All the other seniors got their quotes under their pictures except the two gay guys. 
The boys say they will put stickers in their yearbooks reflecting the words that should have appeared there. Being well-liked by a large group of people cannot take the place of forging deep, supportive friendships. These are the words of Rachel Narr, a grad student at the University of Virginia who studied high school friendships and high school popularity. She found that if you are not one of the popular kids, you're happier now than they are because you likely made a few really close friends. Quality over quantity, she found, makes you happier and more mentally healthy. Quality friendship, she found, leads to higher self-esteem and improved mental health later in life, while the popular kids have become more susceptible to social anxiety and depression. And while it may seem logical, this is the first known documentation of this idea. Rachel followed nearly 170 young people from when they were 15 until they turned 25. Nearly two-thirds of the young people were white, nearly a third were black. They all came from homes in which the incomes were in the $50,000 range. Rachel interviewed these young adults every year, asking them about their friendships and about their anxieties and their depression, if they had that. She also interviewed their close friends. Rachel did not prove cause and effect in her study, but she has laid out very clear evidence of what a young person's social priorities should be. Can a hacker know when you're having sex? They can if you're a computer science student at the University of Washington, where they've not only hacked into smartphones and smart TVs, but turned those devices into a kind of sonar. The students created a software program called Covert Band, and it works using music in much the same way as a submarine's sonar blips. It can detect human movement through walls. It can tell if you're alone or with somebody. It can detect pumping arms and supine pelvic tilts, movements common to missionary sex. So there's this new software. And through WikiLeaks, we've learned the CIA already knows how to hack into smartphones and TVs. If it's an action comedy starring Samuel L. Jackson and Ryan Reynolds, it must be the week's top movie. The Hitman's Bodyguard was number one in the U.S. and Canada last weekend with just under $22 million in ticket sales. Passings and Passages. Over the weekend, we lost two famous comedians, Dick Gregory and Jerry Lewis. At their primes simultaneously, they could not have been more different. Dick Gregory was a socially conscious African-American comedian who worked the Playboy Clubs in late-night TV. He passed at his home in Washington, D.C., surrounded by his family after 84 years. Jerry Lewis was a white slapstick comedian for the most part, except when hosting the annual Labor Day Muscular Dystrophy Telethon and during his great dramatic role in The King of Comedy. King co-star Robert De Niro issued a statement calling Lewis a pioneer and a friend. Even at 91, wrote De Niro, he didn't miss a beat or a punchline. Lewis also partnered for 10 years with late singer Dean Martin and was for quite a while more popular in France than in the U.S. There are two things you need to know about the annual Kennedy Center Honors Ceremony. The first is that since 1978, it's been an event to honor the finest contributors to the arts and entertainment. First and foremost, it's to honor creative talent, from Leonard Bernstein and Fred Astaire to Merle Haggard and Mel Brooks. The second thing you should know about the Kennedy Center Honors is that, like some presidents and unlike others, Donald and Melania Trump won't be there this year. The White House says Trump doesn't want the political distraction. It isn't clear whether he means he doesn't want politics to distract from the honorees 
or whether he feels that a night with the stars would distract him from his work. Either way, the reason is politics. Jimmy Carter skipped a year when the Iran hostage crisis was at its peak. The first Bush skipped a year, as did Bill Clinton during the Lewinsky scandal. But Clinton went in the six years after that, followed by W., who attended all eight of his years, and Obama, who attended all eight of his. That 22-year streak ends this year. Being honored this time, Latina singer Gloria Estefan, African-American singer Lionel Richie, and All in the Family producer Norman Lear. Lear accepted his invitation via Twitter, adding, What I am not accepting is the White House reception with Donald Trump. On Friday, Trump's Arts Advisory Committee resigned en masse. The 17 members say they could not let stand Trump's false equivalency between the white nationalists who had marched and killed in Charlottesville with the peaceful protests by citizens who oppose hatred. The White House says Trump was going to disband the committee anyway, viewing it as a waste of taxpayer money. On Saturday, Trump took the hint and bowed out of the ceremony that for the past 22 years was attended by presidents. And Donald Trump will not be ecstasy to some German fans of that party drug. German police say they have seized about 5,000 ecstasy tablets worth nearly $13,000 from a van driven into that country from Austria. The X-tabs feature the name Trump embossed on one side and his face embossed on the other. They're orange, of course. From our just-in-case department, if you ever shoot yourself in the heart with a nail gun, you could drive yourself to the hospital, but you probably shouldn't. Ask Doug Bergeson of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, who was working on a fireplace enclosure for a house he was building. He was working in a tight, precarious spot and, quote, it fired before I was ready for it. It didn't really hurt. It just kind of stung me, says Doug, who then looked down to see if he was hurt. He didn't see anything, but he felt the nail with his hand as he placed his hand on his chest, and then he saw the three-and-a-half-inch framing nail moving with the beat of his heart. When I saw it, says Doug, it's like, I'm not going to get anything done today. I drove to the emergency room, says Doug, adding, it seemed like the thing to do. He had the good sense not to try to remove the nail himself. Doug says he felt fine when he got into the car, but says it started to hurt as he was pulling into the hospital. The hospital quickly passed him on to a different hospital, one with a heart surgeon who found the tip of the nail so close to the heart a sheet of paper would have barely fit between them. The surgeon warns a wrong heartbeat, a wrong position, he would have had a much more complicated problem. The doc also warns that a nail gun shoots at the speed of a 22 caliber rifle and that a Chicago man who shot nails into his leg last year escaped death by barely missing his femoral artery. It's all about responsible nail gun ownership. Yes, it's another animal escapes from zoo story, but in slow motion. A giant tortoise escaped from the Shibukawa Animal Park in Okayama, Japan. They looked high and low for it and came up empty. It's a tortoise. How fast could it go? How far could it go? The frantic zookeepers put up a $4,500 reward. Two weeks went by. Then a man and his son were walking through some woods and found the tortoise about 500 feet from its usual enclosure. It was fine, having made it to the top of a steep slope headed for who knows where. Quoting one of the zookeepers, from now on, we'll make sure to take perfect care of our animals. 
which may be a little like closing the zoo gates after the tortoise is already out. And why did the chicken cross the road? To show off its new jacket? In Perthshire, Scotland, the owner of a bed and breakfast was concerned her chickens would become roadkill since they like to get to the other side to peck and feed. So she made the chickens little reflective vests to wear so motorists would see the chickens better. And while she was at it, she included on those vests advertising for her bed and breakfast. So Louise Lennox's chickens crossed the road to get to the new customers. The men's outhouse at a Canadian campsite kept running out of toilet paper. It started suddenly and happened repeatedly and frequently. As soon as a new roll was installed, it vanished, leaving some campers up a certain creek without a certain paddle. After a dozen rolls vanished one by one from the men's outhouse, the phenomenon moved to the women's outhouse. That's when people swung into action, and then the thief was caught. Squirrels had been slipping in under the outhouse doors and clawing at what appeared to them to be the perfect nesting material. The day the thieves got caught was the day a squirrel had left a yards-long trail of unfurled bathroom tissue all the way back to the outhouses. Rodents often use paper for nesting. Squirrels, building their nest in trees, also need something that's absorbent. What brand of tissue do squirrels prefer? We'll wait for the commercial. And finally, from the home office in Florida, near Orlando, members of the Orange County Sheriff's Office Auto Theft Unit caught up with the 22-year-old who had been driving a stolen car. They arrested him outside a tool store where the alleged car thief had stopped to buy a welder's helmet. They arrested him as he stood next to that stolen car wearing his welder's helmet to watch the eclipse. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.